Hi everyone, welcome back to How to College First Gen, where we have real conversations about what it's like to be a first generation student before, during, and after college. I'm your host, Shiv. For those of you new to the podcast, our goal here is to democratize knowledge that we've gained along the way, learn a bit more about the first gen experience, and hopefully help others going through some of the challenges of first gen experience by sharing lessons learned from fellow first gens. Today, we are joined by the Jakaria sisters, Omika, Rishika, and Ashika, a sister trio originally from New York City. The Jakaria sisters combine their diverse Indian and American identities and their art and content, and have gained more than 700,000 followers across their social media platforms. Whether it's through creating Bollywood hip-hop fusion pieces, going back to the roots through traditional dance, or defining what it means to be a part of the South Asian diaspora, the Jakaria sisters are passionate about pushing boundaries and inspiring other creators to do the same. With their cultural identity being core to their mission, in this episode, we'll sit down with the sisters to explore their journey from a first-gen perspective. Hey, y'all. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having us. Could you share where you recently went to school, your field, and maybe where you work now? I'm Omika. I went to college at Georgetown University in DC, and then I got my MBA from the Tuck School at Dartmouth. And I now work as a management consultant at a boutique strategy consulting firm called Innosite. And I've had experience working in nonprofits, tech, venture capital, and various industries. Hi, everyone. I'm Rishika. I went to undergrad at Emory University in Atlanta, and I'm a rising third-year law student at the Fordham University School of Law. Uh, This summer, I'm a summer associate at Clifford Chance. And hi, everyone. I'm Ashika. I recently graduated from Georgia Tech, where I got my degree in industrial engineering, and now I work in operations at L'Oreal, which is one of the biggest beauty brands in the world. I love that. So diverse and accomplished. And congrats on all these recent milestones from all the diverse degrees to the new jobs. That's exciting. Thank Thank you. So while you guys are all decorated individually, I know a lot of the listeners may know you better together through the platform you created, the Jakaria Sisters. But for those that don't know, you three have inspired many using your expertise in Western and Indian dance styles to create a safe space for young South Asians on social media. So if you can, can you walk me through your childhood of the first gen? Like when did you first realize y'all were first gen students? So we, the three of us grew up in Brooklyn, New York. We grew up near the Coney Island area, which is a pretty diverse part of New York City. And we feel really grateful to have grown up around so much diversity and culture. But at the same time, we also are first generation and that identity has been core to our childhood and who we are. So for me, I know going to school and for the first time realizing that English was not the first language I grew up speaking, was probably one of the core memories that I have of understanding my first generation identity. And then kind of navigating those early school years and figuring out, you know, that I I have a different upbringing from my classmates and, and trying to understand what that means and how I should navigate the academic space that might not be created with first generation students in mind was definitely a challenge, but taught me a lot about myself. Yeah, I would also say I realized it for the first time when I went to college because I'd grown up going to New York City public schools. We all had, and that was a really great experience. We were surrounded by a lot of different people, but I ended up going to a private university and it was the first time I was around people who had very different academic backgrounds from me. Maybe they had gone to boarding school or prep school, private school, all of that. And it seemed like a lot of people had different resources and access that I just was never exposed to. But growing up, I didn't even think 
of that at all because it wasn't something that was in my mind. And then when I went to college, it just became more at the forefront. It was, you know, people who maybe had family lineages at the university or whose parents were in certain fields and careers who had a little bit more context. And that's when it really came to mind for me. And I think another addition to that is we had this added complexity of being first gen South Asian students in Brooklyn, which even though Brooklyn was very diverse, there weren't a lot of South Asians there at the time back in the early 2000s, late 1990s. So that was definitely another layer of being first gen in New York City. And I think one of the first times I realized that was when we started our dance training. So we all started training in classical Russian ballet dance classes back when we were each like two, three years old. And that's even though that area and that sphere of Brooklyn was very diverse in the fact that there were a lot of immigrants from Eastern Europe or even first gen dance students from that kind of area of the world. We were the only ones that were South Asian. So that was definitely another layer of complexity that was added to our childhood. Well, shifting forward a little bit, you mentioned going from public schools to private schools was really eye-opening, but I'm intrigued that you guys all went to different career fields, like drastically different career fields. How did that play out? I don't know. It's crazy that we're all in such different fields. And I think that it kind of is very unique to each of us. We all inhibit those characteristics that make who we are. Like Omika has really explored entrepreneurship, business, Rushika's in the law field. And then I kind of went into engineering. And back when we were younger, you could see sort of those characteristics and our achievements in academics kind of showcase that early on. So it's really cool to see how that's played out later on and how we've really chosen those fields. And I don't think it really had to do with our parents kind of forcing us into those. Um, I think a lot of first gen experienced that with parents kind of pushing them to be doctors, lawyers, engineers, but it really came from our own passions. And, and we pursued that because we wanted to, um, obviously with the support of our parents, but it, it did come from inside all of us. I'm glad to hear. So Omigo, you mentioned the transition from New York public schools to Georgetown was pretty distinct. And I'm assuming there was also probably a jump from working to B-school. Did you feel a, a similar jump or like where did you experience a first-gen identity the strongest throughout your academic life? I've definitely been thinking about this a lot recently. I absolutely experienced it in college. As I mentioned, that jump from public school to private school and just being around people who had had more access and resources growing up was something that became salient when I was in college. And I actually experienced it a lot in business school in a way that I didn't anticipate to. I knew that I wanted to get an advanced degree and I wanted to go to business school. I knew that it would open up a lot of doors and opportunities to me, especially being a first gen that I wouldn't have access to otherwise. And I'm really grateful that I went. However, when I got there, I did almost feel like I was around people either who who were like me, which was great, or people who maybe their parents had gone to business school or had had these really high powered jobs in corporate America and who just knew a little bit more. For me, it was always a destination to, to get that graduate degree. But then once I got there, I almost felt a little bit confused about what to do because there was there were very few people that I could look up to in my own family or in our close friend circle growing up who had gone to business school and advanced their career in that way. So I almost felt a little bit like a, a fish out of water thinking like, what do I do now? You know, I, I, I'm going to get this degree, which people told me to get and I knew I should, but like, what do I do with it now? And it felt like there's so many opportunities out there, but I almost like didn't know what to do. So it was really interesting. And I think also being a woman in business, like that definitely came up a lot in business school too, in a way that it hadn't come up in my career or in college before, where I felt like, okay, it's, it feels like the sky's the limit, but what does that really 
look like for me and just like not really having anyone to guide me through it was challenging and it continues to be a challenge, but it's taught me to be really resourceful about how I ask for help, how I find mentors, how I navigate the space on my own now. But yeah, I would say that it, it kind of hit me in a way that I, I wasn't expecting it when I went to business school. Understandable. The first gen experience often plays out in ways that are really small and really like unnoticeable because they compound over time. So interesting to hear you say that. But that leads me to two questions based on your experience. One is like, how did you figure out what you want to do with all of these potential career paths looming over your head during the two years that you're trying to maximize? So that's the one thing. But let's start a little bit before, which is during your time in business school. Was it hard to find your tribe? people that have shared experiences or similar experiences through your childhood and was there a community like that because i'm at sloan now and there's a club called like the fli club it's a first gen and low income club and that's been like my tribe i've been able to identify with and be like oh these are people that are like me uh was there anything similar at tuck that you've been able to lean on or build your own network yeah there were definitely people that i could relate to on a one-on-one level i think tuck is tuck is also a really small school so there weren't necessarily a ton of a formalized ways to explore that we had a we have an association of diverse alumni we have a consortium all which were really great but i think it's interesting because a lot of that often focuses on race and ethnicity versus socioeconomic status or actually being first gen which i think of course they're they're not mutually exclusive i think there's a lot of overlap but there is something to be said about about coming from a different socioeconomic background or truly being first gen or being, you know, having that identity. So I definitely did crave a little bit of that. I think most of it was organic and I absolutely did find like-minded people. However, when you look at how the institution is set up, it's set up in a way to support kind of traditions and people who, who've been through it over and over again. And because these institutions are so steeped in in history, it's like hard to undo some of that. So a lot of it is like institutional challenges, obviously, which every school faces. And so a lot of the stuff that happens that goes against it has to be organic and led by individuals. So that was definitely my experience there. So yeah, I did find like-minded people, but I think there's a long ways to go in terms of having a supportive environment for people who are like us. Noted. And then the second part of the question. So how did you figure out where you wanted to go post MBA, given the 50 gajillion job opportunities you could have after? How'd you kind of narrow that lens? I explored a lot of different things. I consider myself to be a very curious and inquisitive person. I've tried a lot of different career paths before business school too. So I was honestly very open to, to trying out new things. I was coming from the nonprofit world. So my goal was to, to get more private sector experience. And I was really interested in design, innovation, and future strategy things that come up in venture capital, entrepreneurship, and other forms. So I explored various internships. I interned in VC. I did a a semester internship in VC also, and then I ended up doing innovation consulting. So for me, it was sort of just following my curiosity and my passion and talking to different people, like being open-minded. I was also in business school during COVID. So I think that made it really hard in some ways to, to actually go out and explore things in person. But I really tried to to go in with a sort of clear idea of what I wanted, but also stay open to all of the possibility that was out there. Yeah. And you also said something that was kind of interesting, which was the curiosity that you had during your business school helped you figure out where you wanted to go after testing different things. I think that curiosity may be distinct to first gens because the world is our oyster and we're just used to thinking about all the different opportunities that we're not used to seeing. So maybe that helped provide a level of enthusiasm or curiosity that may be unique to us. So hopefully that helped as well. No, I I completely agree with that. I think when I think about our parents' path, they 
I, as I get older, I appreciate it more and more because I, I see them. I see where they were at my age and it's really amazing. And it's something to applaud truly. Cause when they came to the U S they were, they just didn't know anything. Like they barely spoke English and then they were just able to carve out their own paths. And it was that curiosity and that resourcefulness that has taken them to where they are today. So I really now try to emulate that even more. And I realize how much that's been ingrained in me just by seeing my parents go through their journey. Awesome. Well, let's pivot to Ashika and explore your first-gen experience through your engineering career. How did that play out during your undergrad and also the job you're at now? Yeah. So actually backtracking a little bit further than that, I didn't take the conventional path of going to an academic high school. I actually went to a performing arts high school in New York City. So I went to a public high school in New York City. It was called LaGuardia, the top performing high school in the country. And I studied dance there. So I was majoring in dance. I also had my academic classes. But one thing that I knew when I was 13, when I applied for high school, which is kind of the system in New York, you have to apply and take tests to get into high school or to get into a specialized high school. And I was lucky enough to enroll in this really top performing arts high school where I got in for dance. And when I was 13, I knew that that's something I wanted to pursue for the rest of my life. So I ended up doing that. And then kind of like sophomore, junior year, I realized I also have this huge interest in STEM and motivating young girls to also pursue careers in STEM. So I had this sort of balance between arts and then science. And then when I was applying to college, I really wanted to find a program that was able to build both of those for me. So I applied to a lot of engineering programs, pre-med programs, but I also wanted to be mindful of a place that had a good supportive performing arts system too. I was lucky enough to get into Georgia Tech after that. And there I pursued industrial engineering, like I said, and I think Georgia Tech is one of those interesting places where there are a lot of first gen or even immigrants there. There's a huge South Asian community at Georgia Tech. I think a lot of engineering institutions, you'll see that where there's a lot more diversity typically, especially from the region of Asia. So I was really, I had a great time at Georgia Tech. That was probably another time when I was able to explore my first gen identity a lot more. I was able to join the Desi Dance Circuit. I was able to really interact with a lot more South Asians, which I didn't see a lot in my performing arts high school. I think I was one of two brown girls in the entire high school. And I also didn't see that a lot in elementary or middle school and in the Russian ballet classes I was taking earlier than that. So going into Georgia Tech, I was really just excited to surround myself with people who had similar experiences as me growing up. And then that kind of also transitioned into my career of pursuing supply chain engineering and going into operations. So, yeah. It's cool to hear that you went to a performing arts focused high school and then went to a STEM focused university. I think folks often assume that STEM oriented technical degrees or technical students or technical professionals tend to be less creative or they tend to have less of a tendency to be left brained, right brain, I forgot which brain. Like, how do you balance that? Or like, do you think that's a, that's a unique asset to you? Yeah, I 100% think it's a unique asset. I think it's very true that a lot of engineers or people in the STEM community aren't necessarily like exploring those creative sides of their brain. But I think having that creative asset and being able to apply it to my studies has helped me a lot more and it's helped me think outside of the box. And I think that's what's helped with a lot of the engineering that I do. And also now working at a beauty company where there's so much kind of creativity in that aspect where you're not just working on a project uh, project or product that's kind of just like common. It's, it's very unique and creative and you have to have that mindset. And the people that work at my company also have that mindset. I think it's really helped me in getting that job and then maybe even seeing what else I want to do in the future. So 100%, I think having that dance and art mindset helps with everything that I do in school and work. Yeah. 
We'll pivot over to Rishika then. Uh, I know you're in law school. How has the first-gen experience affected your time from undergrad to even applying to law school to even being a part of it, shaping your classroom discussions, where you're researching within law, all of that? Sure. So I'll start by explaining why I went to law school, and then I'll share a bit more about my experience as a first-generation law student. Um, So when I was an undergrad, I worked in the political campaign space. I worked with Emory organizations on local Atlanta campaigns. And then during one of my summer internships, I worked on local New York campaigns, specifically in the campaign finance area. And I realized that our legal system is really ubiquitous and ever present in every part of our lives. So I wanted to explore that further. And for me, the logical next step was to go to law school and get a better understanding of the law and get a better sense of how to be an effective advocate if I ever wanted to go back into uh, the political campaign space after. So I applied to law school. And I think from the get go from the application process, and then moving into law school, I was really made aware of my first generation ID and identity. And I think this happened in two ways. First, I think as a first generation student who's applying to grad school, you don't necessarily have a financial safety net. I think that oftentimes first generation students don't have an understanding of like the financial systems that govern these graduate programs and uh, first generation students tend to take out more loans and can't really rely on their parents to provide the financial support. So I felt that during the application process, I think that I had to you know, explore more options for applying to different law schools and figure out, you know, how to get fee waivers and not spend so much money on just applying. (laughs) And, you know, that even starts with standardized testing. When I was taking the LSAT, like these courses can be really expensive. And so kind of navigating that financial process was tougher than maybe my non-first generation counterparts who have parents that have been through the application process or have experience taking these standardized tests. And then second was also it can feel like there's a lack of emotional support or emotional safety net because, for example, my parents didn't go to law school and, you know, didn't go through that application process. So it it was tough to, you know, be able to talk to people that could relate to your shared experiences and guide you through the process. And I think that also carried into the first year of law school when I'm, I was sitting in my, you know, first year doctrinal classes and surrounded by classmates who may have had, as Omika mentioned earlier, similar to business school, like family, family lineages who went to institutions like these. So it was really interesting. But I think that after feeling kind of like, although I belonged in law school, I wasn't necessarily represented in the classroom discussions or even the coursework that we were learning. I wanted to create a space for South Asian students at Fordham and specifically first generation South Asian students. So I started um, the Fordham chapter of the South Asian Law Student Association. And I've been, thank you, I've been Um, putting an effort to make sure that any South Asian students, first generation students who come to Fordham, you know, after me have a support network and are able to find individuals who can mentor them and relate to what they do. So it's really interesting, I think. And also, I think the legal curriculum tends to be pretty antiquated. It's very traditional. We learn things because they've been taught before. And so I think that one thing that I've really pushed myself to do is remind myself that my experiences and my voice really matters in the classroom. And so if there are any other, you know, students who are listening to this podcast who are interested in maybe going to law school, it's just a reminder that your experiences matter. The law school classroom is meant to be really a conversation and discussion about, you know, the state of our country and the history of our country. So I, it's, it's a very intellectually stimulating experience. And I think that it's important to remember that as first generation students, as South Asian students, our voices and experiences really matter. That's awesome, first of all. And I'm glad to hear that you were paying it forward during your time in law school, making that group, making that safe space. Uh, It's very easy to not do that and just take your own experience and call it a day, but it's nice to pay it forward a little bit. But building on that, you mentioned that you're currently interning, correct? 
congrats on getting that. How was that selection process of where you wanted to work and where you want to work after? Yeah, so I'm working at Clifford Chance this summer. Clifford Chance is a big law firm. They have a huge New York office, but their their biggest office is based out of London. And it was really interesting as I was going through the recruiting process. Again, I was reminded of my my first gen- generation identity because as I was going through interviews, you know, I realized that the people who were interviewing me were not necessarily people who could relate to my experiences. And so that was also an interesting added layer of kind of navigating, you know, my identity and then using my experiences to interview for these big law firms that are primarily dominated by white folks and then also don't necessarily have a lot of first generation attorneys who work at these big law firms. So I chose my firm Clifford Chance because of its really robust international practice. For me, it was important to work at a law firm where my colleagues would, you know, be culturally sensitive and be used to working with people from different backgrounds. So Clifford Chance, for example, has a big New York office, but they have offices in London, in Dubai, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, in Delhi. So they have a that's just to name a few, but they have a big international presence. And so for me, that was an indication that this law firm would be, you know, growing attorneys who are able to work with people from different cultures. So I've really enjoyed my experience. This summer, I'm working with their litigation group. So those are typically what you think of like courtroom lawyers, people who work with dispute resolution. I'm a middle child, so I'm used to conflict resolution and being a mediator. So it feels like it fits right in with you know how I've grown up. <laughs> but I really enjoyed my experience. And yeah, I think in terms of any job that you're looking for, it's important to you know have your non-negotiables and think about which type of work environment you'll really thrive in. And for me, that was being at a law firm that has a really big international presence because that's an indication that the people you're working with are able to work with people from different perspectives and backgrounds. I love that you're playing to your strengths in law school. That's awesome. But let's pivot over to the Jakaria sisters, which is the platform that you all have created. So you mentioned earlier that you started back in March 2020, correct? Why, where, and how did this all begin? Like, what was the origin story for this? Yeah, so many, like many content creators, we started back in March of 2020. We had just gotten home from college. We were on a two-week spring break and didn't realize we were never going back to school. And at the time, TikTok was really popping off. People were on the app, posting a lot of content. And honestly, I just had the app as like a meme place to find other meme videos. It's kind of like a Vine replacement. And I was just scrolling. There were a lot of dance trends at the time. I think TikTok was one of the first times we see a lot of dance content on a platform. And so they didn't really know what TikTok was. So I would just make them watch videos. And I think we came across a video and I was like, let's create this. Because I think as growing up, we always danced together. And seeing that there were a lot of dances on the app, we were like, let's channel what we did when we were younger and just post the stuff instead of just dancing together. So we followed one of the trends, posted something. Then we were like, this app is actually really fun because we're getting to be active during quarantine. We're literally not leaving the house. We're still in school taking tests from home and like studying together. But why don't we like make this a hobby? So then we posted more videos and we kept posting dance videos. And then slowly we started seeing these trends, but we realized that they didn't have a lot of South Asian influence. It was very mainstream. And so we were like, why don't we add some South Asian flair to it? So we did some bunger videos. We added Ross, like Dandia sticks to one of the trends. Um, and I think that's the first time we saw our video kind of gain traction and get gain a lot more views than we were originally getting. So then we started playing around with that a little bit more. We saw some of the viral songs that were coming out that were very mainstream and then added some sort of South Asian flair to it and noticed that those were the videos that were getting more and more views, more and more comments and likes. So we just kind of rolled with it. And then we were like, 
well, we didn't grow up just dancing or just training in like hip hop or jazz. We also did Ross and we we grew up going to Gurba. We um, learned Paranatyam. We learned Bollywood growing up. So why don't we just find those songs and dance to them and post them on the internet? And honestly, from there, we just realized that there was a huge South Asian community, especially people who are our age, like-minded, had similar goals, and people really resonated with our dances. And they were the first, it was kind of like the first time seeing a lot of South Asian content on a platform where there weren't many South Asian dances being posted. So then we kind of turned our account into, okay, let's post a lot of choreographies because we've grown up choreographing, we've grown up training in dance. Why don't we post these choreographies? And then all of our mentions or people tagging us in videos where people recreating our choreographies because honestly when I go on the app and I see someone else doing a Gerba dance I want to learn it I want to post it I want to next time I get ready for a wedding I want to take a video in that dance I want to make dances to the songs that I'm seeing on TikTok so that's kind of just how it started and then it rolled from there and we've kind of just expanded our platforms from there and I don't know the rest is just history yeah I'm glad to see that traction to kind of build on that, because I'm sure when you originally kicked this off, it must have felt like risky in a sense, right? Because you mentioned that we have this expectation on ourselves that you dance and you do that until like college or at the end of your university. And then you're like, okay, let me go get serious, get a job, work nine to nine and grind it out. But then you're essentially launching an entrepreneurial venture where you're having a non-professional perception and people can see that. And it's a, it's a whole different expectation, I think, or like visualization of yourself. That's not your LinkedIn profile, you're dancing. So how has that been? Like, did you consider that to be a professional risk in any way? And how has that been received by your peers and your workplaces? I think going into it, we had no expectations. So March 2020, no expectations. April, we started seeing a lot of traction. We were like, this is really fun. This is really cool. It's like really validating to see likes on social media, right? Like, cool, fun, hobby. It wasn't until May that we, I think, got our first kind of collaborations with brands companies started reaching out to us and that's when we all sat down together and we're like we can make this a thing knowing that we had each other's support i think going into it alone could be a whole different beast and maybe just like a different experience but together we're pretty close as sisters and going into this we were like at least we have each other's support and we can do it together so if it does fail we still have each other we have our you know our, our school our academic we have our jobs that are lined up, but we can also pursue this and see what happens with it. And I think like you said earlier, we bring very different things to the table, very different skills um, with our different backgrounds and our different academic backgrounds. So going into this, we felt really confident that we could do something out of it. But I think it's it's just interesting to see how it's evolved over time to know that going into it, like it was one thing, but now every single day we kind of evolve into something else and we can bring new perspectives and new kind of just experiences to it and and see how much there is to grow from here. I think it's really intimidating at first, but we also have our like our careers to kind of escape to if, you know, things fail and and they haven't yet. So it's been really cool to see that. Yeah, I'm glad. And speaking of the career to escape to or like your nine to five, your day job, how has that been shaped by this platform that you created? Have the last two years affected what kind of roles you may want in the future, the kind of person you think you want to be in the future? How has that kind of crossed paths with each other? Yeah, I think in the in the beginning, I felt that the two should be separate in some way, or I felt like I wanted to have those boundaries and draw those lines. But then as time has gone on, I've really started to challenge that assumption a little bit more. And I realized that there are ways for everything to overlap because at the end of the day, there is no such thing as 
as work-life balance or as boundaries, like it all kind of melts together, everything, there's a lot of like energetic overlap. And if, if something is giving you energy in one space, like there's a chance that it could give you energy in another space too. So for me, I've been thinking about, you know, I work in consulting and that's really broad. I work with a lot of different industries and all of that. I've recently become really interested in media and entertainment. I think that's like a fascinating space, even looking at it both from the creator perspective, but also from that, that business perspective too. There's so much opportunity and there's so many interesting things happening online right now. So that's definitely something to explore. But I think, yeah, I think there definitely can be overlap. I think the two can coexist. It's it's a new dawn of day. <laughs> like there's a lot, there's a lot of cool opportunity. Um, and I think another thing too, that I personally have been exploring is is just talking about these overlaps a little bit more and being really open about my experiences because there is nobody who has had all these experiences in the past. I mean, a lot of these platforms are new, having multiple jobs or side hustles, all of that. Those are all new concepts that are being embraced by our generation. So it's really important to me to talk about it openly and to share my learning, share insights, have open conversations like these, and just encourage other people to to do the same because why not? It can feel a little scary to like put yourself out there and talk about these things, but I think it's it's really cool. Like why why not us? Why not all of us? I also I just to add to that. I also feel really grateful that I'm in a role and position in my company where I can communicate that to my manager and my team and let them know that I have this going on on the outside. Um not everyone is in that place where they can openly share with their company that they have this creative thing going on because not all companies are encouraging with that or um, allow people to pursue passions outside. So I'm in a place where I can, you know, really share openly and like say my interests to the people I work with and say, I have to, you know, log off by this time because I have an event to go to and this is really important in my life. And it's important that I pursue this because if I don't, I'm not going to be able to fully be happy and fully contribute to the nine to five job that I have. So it's really cool that, and maybe, maybe I did think of this going into it, knowing that I had this career on on the side or however you want to call it. Maybe I did think of that one choosing a full-time role because I wanted to make sure that I was in a place where I can pursue both and not just be tied down to something just because you know the company is kind of making me do it. So um, it's, it's cool to see how people make those choices, especially in the content creator industry with people who continue to have those full-time corporate jobs. Have y'all seen a acceptance of this kind of honesty or this kind of self-reflection when you share this dual part of your life? As you guys share this experience with your coworkers, your supervisors, has it been accepted? It has for me. I think I'm also very conscious of who I tell and not kind of everyone. I think there's still those boundaries that you keep, but... I, when, when choosing like the role, I, I made sure that the people were okay with it to make sure that, you know, they're respectful of what I want to do outside. But I don't know if you guys have had different experiences with sharing it in the workplace. Yeah, I think it truly is context industry and company dependent. Like it, it just really, I don't think there's a one size fits all answer. Um, I think at the end of the day, when you're working for a company, their main priority is to make sure that you can do your job that they're paying you to do. So like there, there's no ifs, ands or buts around that, no matter where you work, I believe. Of course, there are places that are like way more accepting and open to things. Um, again, with that caveat that you obviously have to do your job. So um, I think I think workplaces are changing. I think people are becoming a lot more open to it. But yeah, at the end of the day, like there, you know, there definitely is that reality, but it's, it's definitely possible. Cool. So I have a long-winded question, so bear with me as I spiel the setup for it. (laughs) 
So it's understandable, I think, for first gens to be risk averse, given that uh, some of our families haven't had formal college education or high school education. The stability of the highway or traditional career paths feels super like, appealing. This goes back to what y'all were saying earlier, where South Asian parents sometimes want their kids to have a very stable career, whether it's medicine or engineering or law. But at the same time, if you think about it, it makes sense for us to be risk prone because without taking the leap to travel to another nation, learn new skills, the same leap that our parents took, folks like you and I wouldn't have this opportunity to pursue higher education at Dartmouth or Fordham Law. So I'm curious, like, did you feel like your first-hand experience made you more or less risk-averse when you started both this effort and also just in life in general? Hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> I think for me, it was a combination of both. I I chose to go to law school. I'm, I feel so lucky that my parents never pressured me to you know, pick a career in law. They've been always very accepting about what I've chosen to do and the higher education that I have that, that I'm receiving on my you know own volition. At the same time, I wonder if implicitly I've internalized that risk aversion and you know have decided to go to law school so that I can have the financial stability that maybe my parents didn't have when they came to the U.S. and that I feel privileged enough to be able to give myself because if you know because they didn't have it, they came here so that I could do this for myself. So. That's an interesting question. <laughs> I don't know if I have like a clear cut answer for myself, but I think it's definitely a, a mix of both. It's like, I'm sure I've internalized that that risk aversion implicitly because like for example, people, people often ask us if we would ever do content creation full-time and we, 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 do, we don't do it completely full-time right now. Like we have our corporate jobs and we do content creation, we do them simultaneously. But it's an interesting question because I think a, a big part of my answer to that question would be about financial stability. Like if the content creation provided fin the financial stability that my legal career would give me, then sure, I would 100% do it full time, you know? So it's a, for me, it would be a mix of both. Yeah, I think I was just talking to someone about this yesterday because I've definitely been on my own journey of figuring out what risk means to me and what my risk horizon is. And after college, I had a job in tech. I quit it completely to go work at a nonprofit abroad. I took really big pay cut, like very, very big. I was practically not making any money when I lived abroad. And for me, it was a part of just like a personal growth journey. And it was great for me. But then at the same time, it's like I did end up going to business school. So I wonder how much of that was me craving that stability again. And I was talking to my friend about this, about how I don't think there was anything wrong with me making that change once more. I, I do think that you can always change your mind. I think when you're younger, you know, you have little to lose, which is amazing. I feel really lucky that I was able to take those risks. And I frankly think that having that stability is underrated. I think there is something really sexy to say, you know, I do content creation full time or I do this entrepreneurial thing full time. It's really hard. Like, like it is really cool to have a full-time job that gives you benefits, that gives you health insurance, that gives you a steady paycheck that, you know, your freelancing, your entrepreneurship can give you, but it, it's just, it's less stable and it's, it's scary. So I feel really lucky that we have this grounding and this rootedness in, you know, stability, which I think was important to me. Like, again, not having a safety net, like that is frankly important to me and that socioeconomic mobility was important. And that actually allows me to be more creative because I'm not worried about, about some of those other things. It's sort of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like you want to get your fundamental needs fulfilled and then you can kind of explore that higher creation and your spiritual purpose and all of that. So I don't know. I think it's, it's something that I think about every day a lot. And I think there's, there's something both like overrated and underrated about having a full-time job that's stable. And we're also very privileged in the fact that if we do choose to go full-time with content creation and don't have that financial stability, our parents will still 
be able to provide for us in, in an aspect. Like we, we have that safety net to lean on. And I think it's really interesting to think back when our parents immigrated here, they, I want to say they might not have had the option, but I, I also want to say they definitely did not have that option. If they, if they wanted to contact create, which it didn't ex- exist back then, but if they wanted to sort of <laughs> create this job, that's not corporate, it, those opportunities did not exist in the eighties for them specifically because they didn't have their parents living in the country. They didn't have this huge sort of savings to help them pursue that in case it failed. But we have that safety net. So in a way it's like, as first gen, it's not, it is risky, but it's like, we have our parents that will take care of us and take us in, in case something fails. So it's interesting to see like, what is, what like what Omika's saying, what is risk? Like, is it risky to go content creation full-time or is it not because we are first gen and are lucky enough to have our parents still here? Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm glad to see that y'all have been so mindful about what your personal definition of risk is. Because I know a lot of our listeners are all facing their own deliberations. Do you take a job that you're more passionate about, but pays 20K less? Do you go into a field that's less glamorous? Or do you go into MBB consulting? Where is the balance between financial security and happiness and fulfillment? Okay. Doubling down into one of your initial comments about potentially going full-time into content creation. I've recently been dabbling into the climate tech entrepreneurship space, and I've come to quickly recognize the many hurdles that first-gen women and minorities face in the startup world, which I'm sure you guys have seen as well. Given your experience launching the Jakaria Sisters, do you have any advice for first-gens that want to take the path less traveled, whether it's like an atypical career path or even starting your own venture, like you guys have done with this? I Okay, I can go first. I would say... Go for it. I mean, that sounds really, that sounds really rudimentary, but there is just so much opportunity out there, especially right now with the internet, with so many new industries popping up with remote work. I think there's just so much, there is just so much out there, which is really amazing. So if you want to try something, now's a great time to do it. That being said, obviously that's a lot easier said than done. So I'd also just say, don't be afraid to, to test and learn. I think that's something that I feel very passionately about kind of applying that design thinking mindset to real life. Like you are not going to get it right on the first try. You absolutely are not. So you have to be okay with failing and you have to be okay with learning and testing, like treat your life like a science experiment and you'll eventually figure it out. It's never going to be perfect, but getting 80% of the way there is better than getting 0% of the way there. So I truly believe that. And I try to employ that in my life every day. It's, it's definitely a challenge. And finally, I would say just really question the stories that you tell yourself and the limitations that you put on yourself. Obviously, there are limitations that society puts on us, especially being first gen, being minorities. I'm not discounting any of those institutional factors, but there are a lot of limitations that we put on ourselves because we believe that we're not worthy of receiving certain abundance or we're not worthy of achieving certain things or getting to a certain point. But none of that is true. It's all internalized. It's stories that other people have told us. So just really start to question that and and think about the reality that you want to create for yourself in whatever way that happens for you. I would say we see these success stories that are like 0.0001% of the time that actually happen where people kind of quit everything that they're doing, put all their life savings into this project. And then it's like the most successful thing in the world. That's like very rare. And I think back to that design mindset of being able to test it out, that comes with testing it out And if you have the capacity to testing it out while you're still kind of financially stable or like, you know, still, still with your routine life, seeing if it works, it doesn't have to be the most successful at that moment to kind of pursue it afterwards, but kind of like seeing if that kind of has any potential and then kind of putting all your time into it. And I I think that's like kind of the stage we're at right now. We definitely could go into content creation full time and we're we're super lucky for that. But having both at the same time is it's cool because you get to experiment with both and then see what you truly want to do. And if you're still confused, it's, it's just a great place to be where you still have multiple things and 
you can experiment with everything. So um, that would be my advice is like, don't get fooled by these success stories of people just putting all their life savings. I mean, go for it if you want to, but it, it's just important to be mindful that that's not the situation every single time. And it's a lot of hard work and dedication that goes into it before, especially if you've like never content created, if we're talking just for content creation, like if you've never content created and you're like, I want to go into this industry, maybe just like try it out before you like put all of your um, time and dedication into it. But then my second piece of advice is like, also contrary to that is don't wait too long. Like in five years from now, you're going to think, oh, I should have started my content creation five years ago. Like just post, do, do whatever you want. Like if you want to create a product, go for it. Start, start the process because it's really hard, especially after college. And this is something I've been going through after college, after graduating, it's the first time in your life where you don't have any structure and you're kind of just finding that motivation from inside of yourself to do something and, you know, make plans and make structure in your life. As opposed to when you're in school your whole life, you're used to this like nine, like, I don't know, these classes that tell you exactly what to do. When you graduate and you enter your adult life, it's really hard to kind of create that structure in your life. So I would say go for it, do it, because nobody's going to tell you to do it. You have to find that passion inside of yourself. And then also don't wait too long because time flies by in five, again, if, in five years from now, you're going to think, oh, I should have done this five years ago. And you don't want to be like, okay, well now I can't do it because it's been five years too late. Go for it then, then, you know, you, you don't want to think 10 years from now that you should have done 10 years ago. So that's kind of the advice I have. It, I know it's like very different, but it's important to find that balance. I would also add, it's it's really important to find your community and your people who will uplift you. I think when entering a niche or nascent space, it can feel really isolating sometimes. But if you're passionate about something and you seek out those people and that community, I think it makes it just a little bit easier and a little bit you know more fulfilling to have people who support you and people that you can also support. I'm glad to hear. And then building on that a second, because I have this assumption in my mind. I want to test it with you guys to see if it's valid, which is I think now is a better time than ever to enter something that's a traditional because of the the wealth of support that you can get, not just through social media or through other people and other communities that, that, that have already formed around specific things. But because if you're a female founder, there's entire uh, funds dedicated to you. Or if, the, if you're a minority founder, there's entire people dedicated to trying to help uplift you. Do you think that there's a there's been a recent trend in helping build a supportive ecosystem for people to, uh, to take those risks? I think in 2020, just from TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and some of these other platforms, so many jobs were created on in creator market, like in, in this like new, I don't know, it's like, it's literally a metaverse, it's like this big <laughs> universe where so many jobs were created that did not exist prior to 2020. I think people were in the space, but you had to be like the top of the top to kind of get these brand deals. Ever since 2020 hit, you would see this influx of creators that came onto social media and so many people have quit their corporate full-time jobs and even people who are younger than you know 21 still in school have gotten these brand deals and jobs so i think with that and then also like these funds and these support systems where they're willing to kind of push and invest in you to continue these entrepreneurial spirits i think this is like the time to do so and and going to vidcon and going to some of these events where we're talking to people who've experienced the same thing over the past few years it is so common, like it's crazy to be surrounded by these people who also experience the same thing because not being in that sphere, I think it's really hard to realize what's happening in this social media new area of, you know, job creation and, and creator marketing. So it's 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 just insane. Like I think when, when you're removed from it, you don't know that it exists, but once you're in it, you're in it and you realize all the opportunities you have and it's literally endless, like literally endless. Awesome. Yeah, I'm glad to see. Okay, so... As a closing thought, 
Do y'all have any general advice for other first gens that may be listening in? It could be anything from childhood to like how to approach college, how to approach graduate degrees, how to approach life, careers, any general advice you may have. It's a real vague question. (laughs) I'm thinking like, what would I tell my college self, basically? I would say don't be too hard on yourself because it like... The world is hard. America is difficult. Like it, it's just difficult to be the first in your family to do anything. Like that's just the the fact of the or a matter of fact. And you're bound to fail. Like you're you are gonna screw something up. You're not gonna be perfect all the time, and that's okay. That's just a part of life. You're gonna figure it out. You're gonna learn. So that's totally fine. And I think another thing I would say is like don't harbor resentment towards people who you feel have more access or more privilege, resources, whatever than you do, because that's not a helpful feeling. Of course, you can acknowledge that feeling. But at the end of the day, you also have something to bring to the table. You have, you've learned a lot about resourcefulness. You've learned about how to carve your own path in in places that didn't have a path for you to follow. So like really lean in on those strengths. For me, I'm really passionate about entrepreneurship and about trying new things, like looking at into future markets and things. And I think so much of that comes from my first gen identity. Like if I had a clear path to follow, I wouldn't have those passions and I wouldn't be able to have those strengths at all. So you have unique strengths and perspectives. And if you learn how to leverage them, you can go really far, whatever that means to you. And just, yeah, you'll, you'll figure it out is what I would say. Awesome. Amazing words. There is a community out there. And I think that with the rise of social media, it's been almost easier to connect with people. Maybe we didn't have this easy access when we were younger, but there are people who are willing to support and mentor and help. And so just realizing that you're not alone in what you're doing. Sometimes you might have to seek out that community. You might have to create it yourself. You might have to build it, but there, there is space for you and for people who are similar to you. So never feel like there isn't space for you in these maybe large institutions that weren't necessarily created for people like us. A lot of us are breaking a lot of generational cycles and things that our ancestors just did not have the opportunity to change. So it's really amazing to be in this position of immense power and privilege for future generations. Like we are the turning point. We are changing the tide. And that is really cool. Like there's a lot of work to be done. It's a lot of inner work and need to find that support. But like we are literally generational cycle breakers in a lot of ways, which is really awesome. Quickly, I would say don't care about what others have to say. And I think that's a really easy thing to say, but hard thing to do and follow and listen to. But... I think on social media, you see a lot of comments and, you know, you see a lot of validation, but then also a lot of hate that will validate those feelings. And it's just not helpful in any way to look at those comments. And it's kind of destructive. And, you know, you think before social media, that didn't exist. You would have the people that, you know, lived near you or you you saw often and those are the comments and opinions you hear. Now you hear someone from India saying something about you in your comments and telling you how you should live your life. Like how, like that doesn't make sense in my mind and that's not how humans operate. So it's important to forget. To, it's important to remember to not really listen to those comments um, because they don't matter. You, you have to find those five people in your life, five to 10 people in your life that really understand you and matter to you. And then whatever you post, you can show them, ask them their opinions. And those are the opinions that matter because even the comments that you see that are good, that that makes you feel good at the moment, but it, it's also someone else's opinion about you. So it doesn't really, it, it, I, I try not to let that affect me, whether it's positive or negative, because again, it's not those 10, five to 10 people that matter in your life. Awesome. I love the advice. This has been a wonderful chat. Thank you again for taking the time out to chat with all of our listeners here. I'm sure they learned a ton from you guys. And I wish you guys the best. Thanks for having us.